Hello and welcome to this latest Food and Drink Federation podcast. My name is Tim Rycroft, I'm Chief Operating Officer at FDF. And today I'm in conversation not with just one Chief Executive, Ian Wright, Chief Executive of the FDF, but with two, because we also joined uh, down the line, as they say, from Edinburgh, by David Thompson, Chief Executive of FDF Scotland. So we're joined by David because we're going to spend most of today's conversation on the fascinating and at times labyrinthine subject of the UK internal market. Uh, but just before we get to that, there's one other thing that I would like to uh, talk about today, which is the National Food Strategy, part one of which was published in the last few days and was to some extent uh, overshadowed a bit by the government's obesity plan, uh, which was the subject of last week's podcast. Um, so, Ian, can you tell us a little bit about the genesis of the National Food Strategy first? The National Food Strategy was conceived by Michael Gove when he was Secretary of State for the Environment, uh, Food and Rural Affairs. And uh, he correctly, I think, identified that the UK has not had a food strategy for pretty much the period since the Second World War. Uh, and when it had a food strategy in the Second World War, it was feed everybody. Um, because as you recall, the uh, UK was blockaded by uh, Germany for a long period in the Second World War with the express attempt to effectively starve us into submission. And at the point when we went into the 1939-45 war, the, uh, the UK was importing something like 70 or 80% of its food, most of it from what is now the Commonwealth and was then the empire. By the time we get to now, the UK imports only 40% of its food, uh, but that figure goes up and down across the year and obviously is much lower at the moment because seasonal uh, British produce is now fully in the shops. But by the time we get to October, November, December, the, the figure has gone up again and is probably more than half the food we're eating is being imported. Um, and one of the things that the government, I think, rightly wants to do is to, to try in the post-Brexit world to get a handle on all of this and to have a clear strategy mapped out for the way in which our food is sourced, for the way in which that, that food that's uh, created, produced in the UK is produced, what standards, what kind of foods are we aiming to be, for which we are aiming to be famous, and into all of that come questions about international trade, questions about uh, diet and obesity and health, and also questions about uh, the, the nature of economic support for food production. And all of these need addressing from a government policy point of view, even if they're not going to micromanage the way food's produced. So the person that Michael Gove commissioned to carry out this strategic review of food was Henry Dimbleby. Uh, who I know you've met several times. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about Henry and also what are your reflections on the part one report, which we know has been very much diverted like everything else by COVID? Well, it is an intensely personal report and it is Henry's personal reflections on the impact of COVID-19 on the food supply system. Uh, it's written in the first person, it's quite long, it's very personal in the way it uh, discusses food supply, it talks about some of his personal experiences. Uh, Henry uh, has made a previous intervention in UK food policy. Uh, he was responsible for the school food report, 
that uh, drove some of the changes Michael Gove made when he was at education during the coalition. Um, and Henry is himself a food entrepreneur. He, with John Vincent, he owns the Leon chain of uh, restaurants and takeaways. He's, uh, he's an entrepreneur. He was educated at Oxford. He is the son of David Dimbleby, the broadcaster, and the grandson of Richard Dimbleby, the iconic broadcaster from the Second World War. And indeed, in a, a rather strange diversion, uh, he played Richard Dimbleby in The Crown. Not a lot of people know that. Not many people saw it because he was only on for about 20 seconds. But it is, uh, it is rather nice that he played his grandfather in, uh, in that series, that very successful series. I should, of course, say before we move on completely from the Second World War that the the first food strategy was closely linked with FDF because it was, to a large extent, written and directed by Sir John Bodinar, uh, from the who was seconded into the Ministry of Food from the food industry, uh, who was based in a, as I recall, in a hotel in Wales during the war. The Ministry of Food was moved out of London, uh, and who subsequently went on to become our president. Yes, uh, Bodinar was a, a, a biscuit producer from the Midlands, and uh, as part of the war effort, was was. Uh, kind of seconded into uh, ministry and is, has a very strong claim to being the man who, who invented Dig for Victory and fed the nation during one of its most crucial periods and, and he's commemorated in a very small way here at the FDF with a room named after him. So back to the current national food strategy, the one part one of which was published recently, Henry Dimbleby is focused on three themes, food poverty, diet and health, and trade and fairness. Can you say a little bit about um, what the report says about each of those and, and what FDF's view would be about uh, Henry's initial conclusions? Well, uh, it's, it's interventionist, uh, so he supports uh, and indeed has been used as the advance guard of the uh, government's obesity interventions on um, uh, promotions and advertising and calorie labelling. Uh, in trade, he is very clear that we must trade, but that we need uh, to be watchful about food standards. Um, and on food poverty, he, he, I think, correctly identifies it as a major uh, scandal, if you like, in British public life, that we have a whole range of people who uh, simply can't afford to buy or uh, to feed themselves and have to be fed on donations. Now, I'm a bit dubious myself about the notion of food poverty. I think it's poverty. Um, but the implications of significant poverty are that you end up, and this can happen to quite a lot of different groups, you end up pretty reliant on donated food. And during the first part of the COVID-19 crisis, this became more and more apparent as uh, donations from restaurants and food service hubs uh, declined and, uh, and supermarkets were holding on to their food, not donating from the store, uh, their stores in quite the way that was normal because they were worried about running out and having the shelves run uh, empty. And I think Henry rightly uh, actually addresses this question and says that we must have a much more coherent approach and a much more joined up approach to the way that food poverty is managed. Um, and even if you don't accept the notion of food poverty itself, I don't think very many people would say that we, we lack it, that we have a coherent 
strategy for the whole area of donated food. And indeed, I've said several times to government uh, departments and get to parliamentary committees that it's my view that we should have a minister for hunger, a minister who's charged with the responsibility to be, to be the point person to coordinate activity across government to ensure that nobody goes hungry in the UK. So as we said, what we got uh, last week was part one of the National Food Strategy. What do you anticipate part two or the, the main report that we're expecting next year, 2021? What do you anticipate that will cover? Uh, I mean, clearly one of the themes that is not in part one is about the environment and sustainability. Is that something you think will be a big feature of the main report? Yeah, I think I think the, I think the, the main report will be uh, very, very comprehensive. Uh, Henry has a small team working with him in DEFRA. Incidentally, I should have said that he's the lead non-executive director in DEFRA, so he's uh, he is a significant figure already within uh, that department. Um, and he is, I think, going to cover how food is grown, what the role of farming and agriculture is in the production of food. I think he'll say more, actually, about diet and health, depending on how that debate has moved on in the year. Uh, I think he will cover trade in a slightly different way and, and talk about what kind of trade deals we should have and what kind of um, food regulation we should have. I think it will be comprehensive. As I say, it comes from a particular perspective, and I'm not sure that it will be one that everybody welcomes. But And, and I have quite a lot of differences of opinion with Henry on much of what he's already where he's already opined and on what I think is to come. But you can't fault his thoughtfulness and his level of commitment to producing uh, new and innovative ideas. And I think it's a very, very worthwhile contribution to what should be uh, a national debate. And certainly from the vantage point I have, not just here at FDF, but also as the co-chair of the Food and Drink Sector Council, will be very heavily engaged because it is to some degree the Food and Drink Sector Council with which Henry has to it has to link in order to get the report properly critiqued. And the Sector Council is where the whole food chain is represented, not just the manufacturing sector that we represent. Yes, that's correct, yeah. Thank you very much for that, Ian. I'm, I'm going to move on then uh, as trails to talk about the UK internal market white paper. Um, first of all, let me just check that David Thompson is on the line from Edinburgh. Are you there, David? I am, Tim. Thanks uh, very much for inviting me on. It's a great pleasure to have you with us. Um, so, I guess we, we need to start by explaining what the UK internal market is and why the government felt the need to publish a white paper on it. Can you tell us that? Sure, I can. And I guess this is a national debate. Uh, where people didn't really need, uh, recognise there was a need to have a debate. But of course, uh, everyone will be familiar with the term the common market um, as part of the European market. And essentially that has been regulated by the European Commission for years. Uh, so that covers a whole range of legislation, whether that's in food standards, food labelling, uh, and a whole range of other product standards and so on. And of course, as part of the Brexit procedure, the responsibility for that is coming back uh, from the European Union uh, to the United Kingdom. So the administrations, the four administrations in the United Kingdom have needed to work out how they're going to deal with these powers returning. There's over 160 powers returning um, and previously 
uh, legislation in Scotland and England and Wales and Northern Ireland uh, would have been different, but it would have been within the common framework set out within the European Union, creating the common market. Now, the UK government and the four administrations uh, across the UK have been trying to work out amongst themselves how to deal with these powers that are returning and how much should be devolved to the devolved administrations and how much should be brought into the powers of the UK government. This white paper sets to provide a market access commitment to businesses across the whole of the UK uh, to allow them to trade freely across uh, the four uh, nations. Uh, and that's really what the UK government is trying to set out uh, in this white paper. Thank you for that. It's an elegant summary. I, I should point out to our listeners that David um, sees this from a fascinating perspective, having spent many years as a senior civil servant within the Scottish government before uh, joining us to lead FDF Scotland five years ago. It, it sounds very much, David, as if this is uh, heading to be what I think in your neck of the woods is called a stooshi. Uh, that's right, or or, uh, or maybe the mother of all constitutional arguments, because the uh, issue as uh, set out by the Scottish government uh, in Scotland, right, led by the Scottish National Party and the Welsh government, is that a lot of the proposals in this paper tramp across the established devolution that's been in place uh, for 20 years now. Um, and so it is causing a massive political argument. It's called uh, called a power grab by the Scottish government, whereas the UK government portray it as not political at all uh, and something that supports businesses to allow uh, them to you know, trade across barriers. But to illustrate why um, it's causing so much feeling, uh, let me take the uh, completely emotive subject of genetic modification. Uh, under the proposals in the market access commitment in the white paper, um, genetic modification is something that is not allowed at all uh, in Scotland um, and there are various rules uh, around it as part of the EU, but in general it's not uh, something that is used uh, greatly uh, in the United Kingdom. However, if for example Wales uh, were to say that it was relaxing uh, its uh, genetic modification and allowing that for crops and animals in Wales, under the market access proposals, uh, consumers in Scotland and uh, would have to take uh, GM crop that's made in Wales uh, uh, and, and use that. And what that means is it's very difficult for the devolved administrations, uh, whether that's uh, in England, uh, Wales, Scotland or Northern Ireland, to protect themselves from some of these very difficult issues that will be coming forward uh, in the future. Now, GM is a very extreme example, uh, but it's one of the ways where uh, it shows that where the UK government are trying uh, are attempting to make this simple for businesses, uh, there is a complex interaction with the uh, devolved responsibilities that are already in place. It seems to me, David, that business as a whole will generally always want uh, their trade to be as easy as possible, to be as frictionless as possible, to to ensure that they can sell their products as widely as possible. I guess there is going to be a different perspective on this white paper, depending on whether or not you're a business that trades across the UK or one that has a much more regional or local focus in one of the devolved administrations? I, I think that's true to an extent, but you have to recognise that even in Scotland, uh, uh, you know, uh, 60 uh, to 70% of the food and drink that we produce actually goes to the rest of the UK. So even in the, the largest uh, devolved market, the, you know, the, the, the rest of the UK market is uh, very, very important. So actually, most businesses will say, well, of course, 
uh, actually, we didn't think there was a problem. We thought we could trade across the whole of the UK anyway. But, uh, you know, if this is a solution to doing that, if this legislation is a solution to making sure that we can do that, then of course we want to support it. Um, I think, though, that, that because of the political argument, then, then there will be a huge amount of sensitivity in Scotland and Wales and in Northern Ireland about how um, it's approached. And I think the second thing to say is that this legislation isn't the uh, be-all and end-all. It's been introduced uh, in the white paper uh, very close to the end of the, the transition period. Um, it's uh, actually part of a long process. And that process includes uh, you know, the internal market working group and it includes common frameworks, which are the way that the four administrations across the UK um, have decided to work together uh, to try and deal with some of these difficult problems. And those common frameworks are meant to deal with big issues like food standards uh, and food labelling uh, for the food industry. Um, and the legislation is meant to be the backstop to that. So where a common framework can't be agreed, this legislation is supposed to give some protection to firms. So while uh, firms might see this legislation as a very simple thing uh, that would support them to do business, actually, um, how it works and how it interacts with the common frameworks and how it interacts with uh, legislation that's already in place in devolved administrations, like, for example, the deposit return legislation in Scotland, uh, means that there are significant complexities uh, in how it works. So as well as the political complications of devolved administrations in Scotland and Wales, uh, both of whom are heading into elections next year, seems to me there is an additional set of political complications relating to Northern Ireland, uh, which will, of course, in theory, also be subject to this UK internal market legislation at the same time as it is firmly in the spotlight around the Brexit debate and the Northern Ireland protocol and how that is going in practice to operate and how it will impact on trade across the Irish Sea. Um, Ian, what's your sense of how the 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 white paper kind of adds to um, the focus and, and intensity of uh, interest in what's going to happen in Northern Ireland. Well, I think it raises a series of questions which we haven't had to address before. So um, a lot of the internal market of the UK has been preserved largely by the UK's membership of uh, the EU. And it's that membership of the EU and indeed the oversight of the Court of Justice uh, and the European Court that has become such a massive debating point in British politics. Um, it's worth remembering, too, that while Wales and England voted to uh, leave the EU, Scotland and Northern Ireland both voted to remain in the EU. So if I can use a word that doesn't get into public currency very often, the polity of the four nations is very different. The other thing to remember is that there's a sort of devolution deficit in one part of the four nations, and that's England. So there are parliaments for Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland, and there are administrations on a you know, bigger or smaller scale for each of those parts. But there's no English parliament, and there's no English administration. So you have this slightly complicated system where the UK government is uh, theoretically relatively supreme in many matters, but there is an, an devolved power to Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland after the Blair government was elected in 1997, but has never devolved power to the English. And this shows up in a whole range of areas for us. 
So for example, and it's a small example, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland have very active food promotion programmes. Uh, so you know, supporting Scotch whisky or Irish whisky or even Welsh whisky. But there is no uh, equivalent for England. And it means the whole debate is unbalanced. In, Northern, in the Northern Ireland case, of course, as you say, there is this extraordinary complexity uh, that in effect, Northern Ireland is going to be in both the European Union and the United Kingdom uh, as a consequence of the way in which it has been safeguarded. That was the Prime Minister's choice. He's, he is the one who, who elevated this to the level of importance. But the consequence of that is you have to have some mechanism for balancing up the UK internal market. And that's what this, this white paper seeks to do. It's fiendishly complicated, particularly in relation to Northern Ireland. And it's also hugely, hugely politically sensitive because it goes to the heart of many of the debates that have so dulled us over the last four or five years as the Brexit uh, issue has been resolved. The Minister Robin Walker received rather a, uh, a rough ride in front of the House of Lords Committee in the last few days on the issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol and, and Essentially, I think that they were pressing for answers and clarity, which the minister was unable to give. How's your sense of, of how that debate unfolds over the next few months as we head towards the end of the transition period? Well, I'm an admirer of Robin Walker. Uh, we dealt with him when he was at DEFRA. We dealt with him when he was at uh, um, the Department for Exiting the EU. And he's a good minister, a competent person, and of course comes from a great political tradition. His father was Peter Walker, the, uh, the Conservative MP and minister in the Heath government. Um, and I, I think he, he is simply the lightning rod or lightning conductor for, for government policy. I think this is going to get, uh, as I like to say, jiggy over the next uh, few months because uh, key questions are at issue. And the way we do business with each other in the UK has never really been subject to question, but we are now going to have border controls between Great Britain, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales and England, and Northern Ireland. And the role of the Republic of Ireland is also going to be elevated because it's all about the island of Ireland. And most businesses since the peace agreement in 1998 uh, very timely to be discussing this in the week of John Hume, the death of John Hume, the architect of, of much of that peace agreement. Most businesses have long since concluded that the best way to run themselves is to unite Ireland and run it and run it as one uh, one unit, one island with two countries, a two-state solution. But in effect, to ignore the border and and to and to work it as one single unit. And of course, that's now not going to be possible. Uh, in many ways. And so the way in which these controls, these different uh, procedures, the way in which, uh, for example, mixed load lorries are taken from Stranraer to uh, the port of Belfast and how much paperwork, how much bureaucracy is involved, is going to have quite a big bearing on what food is available in the Northern Ireland marketplace and could well the, the bureaucracy and the extra costs could well lead to manufacturers and retailers effectively abandoning Northern Ireland because it's just not possible to make any money there. 
That's a grim prospect. Um, David, back to you. We, we're going to wrap up shortly, but um, I wonder what's your sense, having uh, spoken to a lot of people about this internal market white paper, do you think the government at Westminster is determined to drive it through overall the opposition of the particularly Scottish and Welsh uh, government? Uh, yes, Tim, I, I do think that's the case. Uh, you know, we've been in meetings with uh, Alok Sharma, uh, with Alistair Jack, with the Welsh Secretary of State as well. Um, and it's very clear that they see this legislation as necessary. Um, and it's very clear that they want to hear as many business voices as possible uh, uh, supporting it. So uh, for me, it, it will be introduced. Uh, Alok Sharma described it as being uh, yesterday as being introduced as pretty sharpish after the end of the consultation period, which is just uh, at the end of next week, uh, and also with a view to putting it in place uh, before the 1st of January 2021. So that's an extraordinarily tight timescale for that to happen through the UK Parliament. So it's definitely my view that they will push ahead with this, uh, uh, regardless of the views of the other administrations. And does the Scottish Government and Parliament have any uh, weapons at its disposal to actually frustrate, delay or block this? It depends on the form of the legislation, but if elements of it do uh, are deemed to cover what is currently devolved, um, uh, they, they could uh, block it in the Scottish Parliament. Um, uh, and it really depends on how the legislation puts forward. And I know that the Scottish Government will fight tooth and nail to uh, avoid this legislation being put in place. The other thing to note, as you did earlier, is that it becomes another issue of uh, grievance uh, in terms of the relationship between uh, the devolved administrations and England. And of course, we have elections in the devolved administrations uh, for the new parliaments next year in May. Uh, so even if the law is passed, this will not be the end of the debate. Right, nearly time for us to wrap up. Uh, Ian, have you got any obscure cultural references you wish to share with us this week? Uh, no, although I was pleased that people were so quick to point out that I'd, um, I'd mistakenly characterised Alita Adams as dead, when in fact I was thinking about Minnie Ripperton, whose wonderful song, Loving You is Easy Because You're Beautiful, I had mixed up with Alita's canon. Um, I don't think I do want to uh, raise any other cultural obscurities other than to commend the work of Rupert Holmes, who I think is the only person to have had uh, a book on the New York Times bestseller list, a top 10 hit in the uh, Billboard uh, in the Billboard chart, a, f a most successful film uh, called Where the Truth Lies, and to have written a Broadway smash musical, The Mystery of Edwin Drood. And those last two seem to me to be very uh, appropriate to the subject we've just been discussing. Because in Edwin Drood, unfinished by Charles Dickens, no one has a clue what's going on. And in Where the Truth Lies, nobody knows the answer to that question. And that seems to me to entirely characterise the current debate on the internal market and the Northern Ireland Protocol. And as the legions of FDF podcast listeners reach for Wikipedia to find out whether you are indeed correct about that, it's time for us to sign off for another week. We'll be back with a webinar next week. And our, our podcast will continue on our fortnightly journey. Thank you, Ian. Thank you, David. Thank you for listening to this FDF podcast. FDF is the voice of the food and drink industry, supporting our members with the expertise to develop, grow and strengthen their business. 
To learn more about how we can help your business, contact us at members.inquiries at fdf.org.uk. There's no better time to become an FDF member.